0: welcome to potter's bluff welcome to wake up heavy my weird dad's weird podcast about weird movies episode my weird dad will be talking about dead
2: Hello, and welcome to Wake Up Heavy, Season 1, Episode 4, on Gary Sherman's 1981 film, Dead and Buried.
1: This is the road to Potter's Bluff. Maybe you've been there, clean, picturesque, full of old-fashioned friendliness, the kind of town everyone likes to visit. This is the road to Potter's Bluff. There is no road out. Welcome to Potter's Blood. From the creators of Alien Terror brought down to Earth Dead and buried Is there any way whatsoever to reanimate people after they have done it? And to get them to walk around? That guy, the one, you came to see me about last week But the died after the car wreck Yeah I just saw it granny's dead. the same guy welcome to potter's bluff when you die you expect to remain dead and buried
3: you had a very close call just by still i'm gonna give you something it's gonna make you feel even better
1: when you die in potter's bluff expect The unexpected. From the creators of Alien. Dead and buried. It will take your breath away. All of it. Dead and buried.
2: And I happen to actually have a synopsis that I wrote up for this one, and it's not bad.
0: That doesn't sound right.
2: Something ominous is happening in the quaint New England town of Potter's Bluff. Tourists traveling through town are meeting gruesome deaths at the hands of a violent mob who film the attacks and then stage them as accidents. Sheriff Dan Gillis is determined to find out who is responsible for the murders and why the bodies are disappearing. Is his schoolteacher wife Janet involved? Is the town's elderly coroner hiding a dark secret? And just who in the world is Freddie, the new gas station attendant? Stay tuned for the answers to these burning questions and so much more. Not to sound like a broken record only four episodes into the podcast, but Dead and Buried was, like the previous movies and like many of the movies that I will discuss in the future... One of those regular rentals through the early to mid-80s. But this is a movie that I don't really recall the impetus for renting. It could have been solely based on the box art. We perused the horror section of our local video store pretty much exclusively during those years. So it could have just been being intrigued by that. It might have been from seeing a commercial for it when it played theatrically and then finally getting a chance to rent it. Uh, We watched movies at some family friend's house quite often. They may have brought it over. I, I don't really know. All I know is that once I saw it, it turned into one of those regular rentals like The Thing and Escape from New York and Phantasm and all that. I probably watched this movie a dozen or so times back when I was a teenager, and it is one of the movies that kind of planted itself in the back of my brain for years. And it's still one of my top ten horror films of all time, probably. And I have watched this... I'm not sure how many times over the last year or so, once I finally subscribed to Shudder, and this was one of the main reasons why I finally got my subscription, along with Tourist Trap and Phantasm, I still really enjoy the movie. I can see its faults much more clearly now, but that made me kind of think about what it is that these four movies, the three previous movies that I've discussed, and this one. What is the common thread? And I know that I've mentioned unintentional surrealism and weird tone when discussing those other three movies, and I could say the same thing for Dead and Buried, but I think...
0: That doesn't sound right.
2: Wow, that was really high-pitched. But I think what it is, is that a lot of these movies that I liked when I was younger, they confused me, and I enjoyed that like a puzzle. There's a lot of stuff going on in Dead and Buried that I didn't quite understand. And as an adult, I can see that more as plot holes. But as a kid, I was just trying to piece things together like a puzzle. So part of the issue is the tone. And here is a nice summary from allmovie.com that kind of illustrates that. It's easy to see why Dead and Buried never found a big audience. It is too plot-heavy for those viewers in search of a shock machine, yet too visceral for the viewers who appreciate subtle horror. But those two things were not mutually exclusive to 13- or 14-year-old me. So I think I will talk about three aspects of the production that lead to this disparity in tone and also to some of the confusing elements of the story. The three aspects that I'm referring to are the script and the direction by Gary Sherman and the special effects by Stan Winston. The screenplay is attributed to Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shussett, who had written Alien together as a team. And the story itself was from Jeff Millar and Alex Stern. And I would be curious to see what the differences are between the story and the screenplay attributed to Shussett and O'Bannon and what actually ended up on screen. Because O'Bannon has had disowned the movie and claimed that Shussett kept his name on it to get it produced, and Shusset was a producer on the film. And I am admittedly not the biggest fan of Dan O'Bannon's work. I've seen many of the films that he wrote the screenplays for, um, all the way back to Dark Star, and including Alien, this movie, Invaders from Mars, Life Force, Return of the Living Dead, Total Recall. And the only ones that I really hold in any kind of regard are Alien, Dead and Buried, and Total Recall. And I think it's mainly because he sort of came at movies from a love of campy 50s sci-fi and horror. And that's not my particular cup of tea. But the other thing that kind of bugs me about O'Bannon are the interviews in print and on video that I've uh, read and seen of him where he always kind of came off as the martyr and had the idea that any changes to script were kind of a slap in the face and the people making his films were always kind of messing them up. You know, I think a lot of the success of Alien has to do with the acting, the direction by Ridley Scott, the production design, the creature design, all of that really makes that movie something special. You know, whatever changes they made to the script, I think probably worked for what they were doing. And it may have had more of a, a camp kind of feel, like the movie that it was, in a sense, ripping off Forbidden Planet and Planet of the Vampires. And the finished product is anything but campy, so I can see why uh, changes were made, if that is in fact what happened. So whether anything of his ended up in the film is irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. It's just that we've got four names on here, uh, two on the story, two on the screenplay. When scripts get handed off and handed off, then a lot of things change and maybe we don't connect all the dots. The tone may have been very different in the original story from what O'Bannon came up with with uh, Shusset and what, you know, Shusset ended up trimming out and keeping in or adding to. And then as well, you know, the screenplay is always really the outline for the movie. Then we have the director take control and change things as well. So who knows what the original story's tone was and what we ended up with on film could be something that was totally different. Gary Sherman had directed one movie previously called Deathline in the UK, and it was called Raw Meat in the US, I think to get it to play more like a a exploitation film. But it's it's an interesting film. It's about cannibalism, but it's done with a, a sympathetic eye towards the villains in the movie. If I remember correctly... It involves a family or a group of people that are descendants of the workers who were digging out the London Underground back in, I think, Victorian times and got trapped there when there was a cave-in. So they somehow survived and have been kind of coming up to the surface to kill people for their food. And it stars Donald Pleasance in a, in a you know, particularly wacky Donald Pleasant's role. And Christopher Lee's in it briefly. But it has a, um, like I say, it has a sympathy towards these people who would most likely just be shown as as horrific and, and monstrous. So Sherman wanted to shoot Dead and Buried as a black comedy. And I wonder if that was from remnants of the earlier drafts of the screenplay that gave him that idea if it played out more like a black comedy before they started filming. But I never really saw that. There's no indication of that in the finished movie. And sometimes when a movie's tone is off, you kind of get the idea. They don't know what they're doing during the filming. And a case in point is arachnophobia, which I watched for the first time a couple weeks ago because we were looking for something that was PG or PG-13 that we could watch as a family for October for Halloween. And something that wouldn't scare the crap out of my kid, who is not uh, a big horror fan like her dad. And I noted during the middle of the movie to my wife, you know, the tone is all over the place in this movie. Because scene from scene, it would change to humorous and then kind of dark uh, and it was the acting it was the script it was everything and I don't see that kind of tonal shift in dead and buried it just makes me think where did Sherman get this idea it must have been in the script somewhere and then got abandoned along the way at some point because the movie is it's very atmospheric there are there's little color in it there's a lot of fog in scenes and a lot of grays and the acting is all very straight and somewhat dour and even Jack Albertson as the I think he's you know he's kind of supposed to come off as eccentric which he does but he's he's mainly just kind of cranky and mean it's not a campy performance by any stretch of the imagination so You know, this may have been his original intent, but I don't think that they shot it that way. And the last and possibly most important aspect of the disparity in tone comes from the Amazing Effects work by Stan Winston. This was a project that he kind of decided to go all out with. And there's two scenes that involve pretty complex puppetry. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See
0: website for details.
2: The film opens up with a nice melancholy score over a black and white still photo of the main street of Potter's Bluff. The still turns into a moving image and colors start appearing on the screen. Next, we're on a beach where George Lemoyne is taking pictures of the scenery. Now, I mentioned some connections between this movie and Halloween 3 on the last episode, and I want to stop here and make note of one of them right now. And that is that although this movie is supposed to take place in New England, in uh, Maine specifically, the... Exteriors were shot in Mendocino, California, and that is in the Bay Area. And Halloween 3 was shot in Lolita, California, which is a couple hours further north in Humboldt County. And so I always get the same kind of feel from those small town coastal locations in movies like this and Halloween 3 and a number of other movies, uh, horror movies specifically, shot in the 80s. While George is shooting his pictures, a young lady suddenly appears, and they start to flirt with each other.
3: You look like a, um... Fred. No, no, see. Freddy. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, I think you look like a Freddy. Alright, okay. I'll be Freddy, and you can be... Lisa. I always
2: wanted to meet Lisa. He takes pictures of her, and then she proceeds to seduce him. And then suddenly George is attacked by a group of people. They tie him to a post with fishing net and proceed to set him on fire. While this is happening, a number of people in the crowd are taking pictures and shooting film of the entire event. We then see the welcome sign for the town which says, Welcome to Potter's Bluff, a new way of life. In the next scene, we see Sheriff Dan Gillis at the site of a horrific accident. George's VW bus is overturned and on fire. Coroner William Dobbs arrives in his old-timey car playing his old-timey music. When he inspects the presumably dead body, it lets out an agonizing scream. This is the first example of Stan Winston's amazing effects. The puppet is incredibly realistic. It is burnt to a crisp. One eye is basically melted out. And so the anticipation is that this is just a dead body. Of course, the added benefit is that poor George is still alive. The (laughs) mouth gapes open and the scream that comes out as I've played is absolutely horrifying this is the kind of opening to a movie that just absolutely pulls me in we start to ask ourselves a number of questions and these questions persist throughout the movie and one of the questions is who the heck are these people and why are they killing this guy and the second question of course then is why are they making it look like an accident In the next scene, Sheriff Gillis is in the local diner discussing the previous night's events with a couple of locals. And I will talk about the cast later, but in this scene we have a few familiar faces. One who is very well known to horror fans, and another gentleman who is very well known to anyone who has watched TV in the last 30 years. The most interesting familiar face, though, happens to be the waitress. And she is familiar because she is the lady who set George Lemoyne on fire on the beach. So now we know there is something definitely fishy going on in this little seaside village. Hello. And then we are on to the next scene. And I have to say right here that this movie goes along at a pretty rapid click. We don't spend a lot of time with needless exposition or... People walking around in the woods, um, like a lot of horror movies do. There is something happening in every scene. Something either Sheriff Gillis is investigating, or these crazy town people are murdering people, or we see Dobbs working his magic on the stiffs in his mortuary. So it, it is a quick-moving, nicely-paced movie. Which is kind of a breath of fresh air when it comes to horror because we do have a tendency in horror movies to pad out the timing and that is not done here at all. The next scene involves another mob attack and we have a fisherman or possibly the town drunk and I think I kind of conflate this with Halloween 3 and here's here's another one of those loose connections with the town drunken in, in Halloween 3 getting offed by Colonel. Uh, <laughs> I did it. Conal Cochran's henchman. And here we have who I think is a drunk, possibly just a fisherman, on the docks at night and all of a sudden swarmed by this mob who again are filming the attack. And this guy isn't burned like poor George was, but um, they take some sharp implements to him, and we have some good Stan Winston effects again with a slit throat and a slash across the face. And then the other connection to George is that this murder is again staged as an accident. And this is, we're kind of getting the point here that this is for the sheriff's benefit, if I can use that word, it is They are set up as accidents so that he will investigate. And this raises numerous questions later on in the movie. But the other thing to note about the death of the drunk fisherman is we've got another one of these great character actors in this scene who, again, I'll mention more towards the end, but he should be familiar to people who have watched any kind of cop or military-based show in the last couple of decades, and he shows up in the very next scene in Dobbs' coroner's office. So now it's even more apparent that it is the townspeople who are killing these outsiders and staging the accidents, but we don't know why. All it really does is make the sheriff suspicious of the deaths. And this is what leads him into investigating George's accident, the fisherman's death, and the other murders that happen later on in the movie. But at this point, we get a couple of important plot points, all in succession. Gillis visits Dobbs at his office and sees the gentleman that was taking pictures the night before. Of course, he doesn't know what we know. This is all for our benefit to let us know that something is awry in the town. But he does have an interesting conversation with Dobbs about his work as a mortician.
1: Oh, officer, this is child's play. I've replaced missing eyeballs with sawdust, glued the lids together. I've used bent aluminum combs for dentures. I've used the back part of the scalp when there was no front part and I folded one hand over wadded-up newspapers when the other hand had no fingers. You find all this obscene, Sheriff? Do you know what is really obscene? Look at this. Look at the work I've done. This is an art, and I am the artist. What can you remember about a sealed box, a sealed casket? That is obscene. That is the death of memory. The cosmetologist gives birth, I make
2: souvenirs. So Dobbs takes great pride in his work in making the dead look even better than they did when they were alive. And this is an important point to remember. But soon after, Gillis can't help but raise the question of George's accident and the death of the fisherman. So he tries to trace George's steps in town and finds that he was staying at a local hotel. And he talks to the proprietor there, who sounds like he's straight out of an episode of Murder, She Wrote. Oh,
1: God. Hope nothing happened to him. I checked in here. The jinx sort of thing scares off your business. Just kills the tourist train. I didn't know we had a tourist trade.
2: And Gillis finds out that George was possibly there to sell photographic equipment to the school where his wife works. He asks her about this and then later on gets conflicting information from the school's principal. And so this kind of starts to make him suspicious of his wife. Gillis takes his suspicions to the doctor who has been caring for George since his accident. George, at this point, is still alive. He is completely wrapped in bandages because of his burns, but he is in the hospital and alive. Gillis is trying to figure out if this was in fact an accident or an attempted murder. And while they are talking in the hallway, a nurse enters George's room. He and we realize that it is the same woman that seduced him on the beach. And so he starts to shake and tremor. And she proceeds to insert a very long syringe into his eyeball. And finally killing poor George Lemoyne. And this is one of the more famous images from the movie. It is the image that I have on my SoundCloud player. Which you can see on the blog or on SoundCloud. And this is another example of the Stan Winston effects. The whole body and head of George Lemoyne, is a puppet. It was moved animatronically. The intent was to film this in one wide shot so that the whole scene played out from start to finish with her coming in, him being terrified, and then her inserting the needle. And that was kind of, I think, the impetus for doing a full-body puppet as opposed to just a head. Even though you only see the eyes and the teeth, it's very realistic. But I think Winston was a little put off that there are insert shots, and this wasn't just one take. It kind of negates the need for the full body, even though it's still used to good effect because we don't have a change in the way it looks. We don't have an insert of a puppet after we've seen a live figure on the bed, or a change from a live... Face to a puppet. So, since it's consistent, we believe it's an actual person until that needle gets inserted into the eye. So, it still works, but maybe not as effectively as he would have liked. And the inserting of the needle was done, of course, in reverse. Even though it's a dummy, it's easier to pull something out than to jab something in. It's a shock because you do assume it is a real person the whole time. And now Gillis's suspicions are confirmed. He sees the needle in the eyeball as does the doctor, and we have a murder for sure on our hands along with the fisherman. So he is more determined now to find out what in the hell is going on in his quaint little town. The next time we see Sheriff Gillis, he is at home waiting for Janet to arrive, and I want to take a break from the plot and discuss some fun camera trickery. And there are about three instances that I know of in the film. And this is the first. Janet pulls up in her car and the camera is positioned up by the house. And she walks up the walkway into the house and then closes the door behind her. And I never would have given this much thought if it hadn't been for imdb or wikipedia but the camera trucks all the way back into the house she opens the door comes in and closes the door so it it kind of appears as if the camera has gone through the door and so the door itself was attached to the the dolly where the camera was and since it was glass obviously was just shooting through that and as the camera pulled back some grips actually reattached the door while the camera continued to pull back so that it was then on its hinges when she entered and closed the door. So just a fun little tidbit there. And again, like I said, there's two more pretty fun, old-timey in-camera effects that uh, Gary Sherman employed. So at this point, Gillis is a little bit suspicious of Janet and he discusses these murders with her and she kind of blows him off. She has come home to let him know that she has a PTA meeting and he's on his own for dinner. And then she hands him a roll of film and asks him if he will get it developed for her. And he asks her what it's for and she explains that it's a project Or her classroom, they're working on narrative or something, and she thought that doing a short film would be a good way to teach that. And for some strange reason, this makes Gillis even more suspicious. This will be one of the questions that I ask later on as to why in the world does that make him suspicious? A role of film, he knows nothing about... The fact that this angry, violent, deadly mob is filming people. For the next scene, we're back in the diner with all of our familiar faces from the angry, deadly mob. And a family arrives looking for a gas station. There's a mother, father, and a young boy. While we're in the diner, there is a gentleman seated at the counter with a little cap on his head. And we don't see his face for a while the helpful waitress tells them that Freddy will be happy to help them. When Freddy turns around, we see that it is, in fact, George Lemoyne, and he looks none the worse for being burned alive and stabbed in the eyeball. So, here's the next big reveal. The people that they are killing are somehow coming back to life. Our family of tourists end up, Driving off the road and crashing They look for help in an abandoned house Although the wife is insistent that she saw a light on As they walk through the house We get glimpses of shadows outside the windows But they do get attacked by the welcoming committee
0: Welcome to Potter's Bluff
2: They manage to escape and get in their car And then are attacked again by a woman inside The mom rips her hair out and a piece of her scalp, and they push her out of the car. They take off and drive down the road for a bit, and that same woman jumps on the hood of their car. This is another one of those head scratchers. How in the world did she get back on the hood of the car? Eventually, they go blasting through town.
3: It's time for another tangent.
2: And because this scene involved a child actor, they actually couldn't film at night where the story takes place. They had to construct a massive tent to darken the sky, and apparently they needed fans to blow to keep the tin up and to make it not so hot, and so the whole scene is dubbed. And the dubbing is fine. I'd rather have that than have them shoot this day for night, which would be the tendency for a lot of low-budget productions. It's easy to do an interior as nighttime, but these people are driving out on the road, and it looks convincing. Sheriff Gillis, who had been investigating the fisherman's death at this point, sees the car and decides to give chase. Uh, He starts to go and all of a sudden hits a pedestrian. He gets out of his vehicle to help this poor person, but he is grabbed from behind by the man's arm, which is stuck on his grill. Now here is another one of those little connections that I always feel with Halloween 3 we've got a disembodied arm attached to a part of a car and I think the next time I watch these two movies I need to watch them back to back because there are just for some reason I get the same feel out of both of these strange movies the man he hit eventually pops up hits him in the head grabs his arm and runs off Gillis gives chase but is unable to find him When Gillis gets back home, he's looking for his bullets because, of course, now he's really freaked out. And during his search, he finds a book called Witchcraft and Voodooism.
1: They can only be made from persons dying violent death.
2: And a dagger in one of his wife's dresser drawers. He confronts her about it, and once again, she states that it's for her class. For my
3: class, I'm going to give a lecture in witchcraft.
2: Witchcraft.
1: And why in God's name would you want to teach him that? Kids love
2: creepy things. Gillis takes a sample of the skin from his grill and gives it to the doctor at the hospital to test. At this point in the movie, Gillis is still investigating George Lemoyne's death, as well as trying to figure out who in the world he was in the first place. He only had a name and no other information from anybody in town. And then we've got the suspicious death of the fisherman. And now this man who has lost his arm. And then he gets a call from Harry about a car that's been found in the ocean. As an audience, we know that this car belonged to the family who was traveling through their town. And while Gillis is investigating all this, the proprietor of the hotel that he had spoken to earlier about George Lemoyne comes to the station and tells Gillis that he has recently seen him working at the gas station. Gillis doesn't believe him, but then Ben says,
3: You ask your wife!
2: Gillis picks up his wife Janet from school, where she happens to be reading from the book on voodoo that he found earlier. And who do we spy in the classroom? why it's the little boy whose family was terrorized the night before.
3: Now, although they are conventionally dead, they're capable of
1: very closely imitating the living. There are even reports of a tribe in central Peru whose residents included a great number of these
3: walking dead who are completely at the will of their master.
1: And they roam around the mountains
3: killing strangers and bringing them back to their master. Now, you want to hear the really creepy part? Yeah! (laughs) Okay?
1: (laughs) In order for the master to retain the control over the souls of his undead, he had to cut out their heart and keep it hidden
2: He drives to the gas station, and Freddy is there, but there is no uh, recognition between Freddie and his wife, so he dismisses it. Next, we come to the hitchhiker scene, and this is something that I never really realized before, at least definitely not when I was younger. And I think even the first couple of viewings I had of this more recently, I didn't pick up on this, but the hitchhiker is picked up by an older man who we don't see, until they stop at his boatyard, where he proceeds to take pictures of her. And we realize that it is the fisherman from earlier. So now we have two reanimated corpses in the movie. And of course, the hitchhiker is attacked, filmed, and killed by the mob. Now, here's another instance of something that I completely missed as a kid, and wouldn't even have noticed as an adult if it wasn't for the internet. But apparently the hitchhiker scene and the family traveling through town scenes were edited in the movie differently than how they were shot. So when the family enters the diner, the young lady who is kind of dressed in 50s Bobby Soxer garb, is supposed to be the hitchhiker. So in the script, apparently, her death came prior to that, and then she's seen later on, and I really wouldn't have noticed because she's not wearing the same clothes. She doesn't look the same at all. So, you know, there's just a little bit of movie magic and hoping that people don't catch on, and this person didn't catch on and would never have even noticed it unless I had read about it.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: And the next scene is probably, I think, the, the high point of the special effects. We have the reconstruction of the hitchhiker. They had smashed her face in with a rock. So we, we get an image of her destroyed face and now we have Dobbs working his magic on her to make her look better than she did before
1: oh so lovely so frail so young how could anyone mar such loveliness my dear I will make you beautiful again Even more beautiful than before.
2: This also clues us in on the fact as to why the mob takes pictures and film of the victims. The reconstruction consists of shots of the the head and shoulders of the hitchhiker being Uh, built back up from uh, skeleton to muscle to flesh to hair and makeup and it's a really great kind of time lapse scene the dummy or the puppet is extremely lifelike and realistic the finishing touch is of a shot of Dobbs placing the eyeballs back into her head and so, not only do we have great special effects, but we kind of have the second, I'm sorry, the third instance, and I think I skipped the second one, of the camera trickery. And apparently, um, since Jack Albertson was very ill while they were filming the movie, Stan Winston himself performed a lot of this scene because all you see are Dobbs's hands. So when he's inserting the eyeballs and putting everything in place that's all Winston and then he moves out of frame and Jack Albertson moves in and the camera pulls back so we get a shot of him as the character now as the camera pulls up what they did was they wheeled the puppet out and wheeled the actress back in so when the camera pans back down to her It is actually the real woman. So this is all done in one take. Kind of like what was intended with the animatronic puppet of George Lemoyne in the hospital earlier. And then the camera pulls all the way back and Dobbs leaves. And then from out of the shadows comes a female figure. And she does something to the body and the hitchhiker wakes up. So now we as the audience know for a fact that... They are reanimating corpses in Potter's Bluff. The other little bit of camera trickery that I completely forgot to mention um, happened when Gillis was speaking to the principal of Janet's school earlier in the movie. There is a shot inside of his car that I guess they constructed a little um, track for the inside of the car. And again, it's It's not something you really are cognizant of as you watch it, but generally uh, cameras inside cars are static, or if they need to move, they're placed on the outside of the car, so they obviously took some seats out and stuff and placed this small track inside the car so that the camera could pan and then track back. This kind of stuff goes unnoticed by most folks, and it went unnoticed by me until I read about it, but... You're, it's something subconsciously picks up on that stuff. And I always find it really fascinating to try and even notice it after reading about it when I watch the movie again. Now, a lot of stuff happens in the third act of the film. And this is where a lot of my questions arise. We find out, or Gillis finds out, and we find out, that the flesh from the grill of his car has been dead for at least four months. So this just reinforces the fact that people are being reanimated. But now Gillis is aware of that, or aware of something strange is happening. We get a pretty shoddy effect scene here, and this was done to kind of amp up the gore, I guess, of the movie, which almost seems unnecessary because of what's already been done. But it is not a Stan Winston effect. So, pretty immediately after Gillis finds out about the flesh, the mob attacks the doctor in his office. And we've got the reappearance of Lisa, the gal from the beach and the hospital earlier. And she proceeds to stick tubes in his nose and fills his head full of acid. So, as a kid, you know, I didn't really... Recognize the, the difference in quality of the effects. It was just another gore scene to me, and the dummy head is so much worse than what we had seen before. But it's still a fun uh, scene if you're a special effects junkie like me. And then next we have Dobbs at the police station reporting that the body of the hitchhiker has gone missing. And again, when I get into my my questions about the movie, this is one of them. I don't understand why he tells Gillis that it's missing. This only makes him more suspicious about things. And when we get to the finale of the movie, all the stuff that these people do to make Gillis suspicious makes zero sense. The other important thing about this scene, though, is that Dobbs kind of incriminates Janet here when he mentions that she has asked him about the black arts.
1: You can tell her I was more than mildly insulted. Just because I'm a mortician, she had the audacity to insinuate that I might have knowledge of the black arts.
2: At some point, Gillis has gone back to the gas station and taken a picture of quote-unquote Freddie and sent it back to the uh, newspaper or police station in St. Louis, I think, which is where originally stated he was from, he finds out that it is in fact George Lemoyne, and this starts to raise his suspicions about Dobbs, so he goes to the coroner's office, and he runs into one of the familiar faces that we've seen around town, in the diner, and of course in the mob, and Jimmy is applying mortician's makeup to his arm. He runs out hastily, and Gillis is left there with an empty office. He leaves, and then we see Dobbs roll himself out of one of the um, coolers where they keep the dead bodies. Gillis has George Lemoyne's grave dug up, and he opens the coffin to find that is it is empty, except for a bundle of wrapped-up shirts and sweaters. He unfolds it to find a heart. Gillis checks into Dobbs and finds out that he was fired from his last position as a coroner in Providence, Rhode Island.
3: Subject G. William Dobbs. Dismissed 10
1: October 69 as Chief Pathologist, Providence City Office. Evidence indicated... Subject made unauthorized use of dead bodies
3: in County Moore, no bills by Grand Jury,
1: censured and ejected by Rhode Island Medical Society, 30 November 69. The left, eyes, short evening,
2: Gillis finally picks up the suspicious film roll that Janet had given him to have processed. When he gets it from the shop owner, we notice that the shop owner's hands are cracked and bleeding. He runs into Doc on the street, who looks absolutely fine now, and Gillis asks him, if there's any possibility that the dead can be reanimated.
1: But in your professional opinion, is there any way whatsoever to reanimate people after they have done it?
2: Gillis finally watches the film, which shows him the abandoned house where the family was attacked. And inside is a man and a woman in a bed, surrounded by the townspeople, who take pictures and film things. All of a sudden, the woman pulls out a dagger and stabs the man in the back. His body slumps to the side and we see that it's Janet. Gillis confronts Dobbs about what he is doing. And Dobbs, although he explains why he does it, does not explain how.
1: They had to be disfigured. Don't you see? I have to make them look like they used to look. That's my art. That's my wife. Janet. I found her in Harris Creek in her car. She had drowned. Oh, crazy. That crazy. That's totally insane. Not even her injuries or her bloated condition could hide her beauty. <laughs> yes, she was. She is. Like all the others. Like that man you ran over in your car. He was dead long before you hit him. How'd you do it? Call it black magic. Call it a medical breakthrough. I'll take my secret to the grave.
2: And this is one of those similarities with Halloween 3. The old crazy man with his bizarre reasoning or doing the things that he's doing. Janet eventually shows up, and she's babbling on about dinner and all these other things, and Gillis proceeds to shoot her a number of times, and her last words to him are... Fun fact number 82. Melody Anderson was actually hurt by one of the squibs going off and you can see it in the finished film you can see a piece of debris kind of shoot up and and hit her face and her hair moves which is kind of frightening in itself gillis then shoots dobbs as well janet leaves and proceeds to bury herself in the open grave left by george lemoyne's coffin gillis chases after her and then he is attacked by the mob Gillis now realizes that virtually the whole town have been reanimated. We see the doctor, we see Ben, we see the camera shop owner, and they're all in a state of decay, which is a little odd for everyone to all of a sudden be falling apart, especially since someone like the doc had just been killed and reanimated. He returns to the mortuary and finds that Dobbs has worked his magic on himself. And he has one last surprise for Sheriff Gillis.
1: There's one more thing you should know, Dan. Come, Dan, let me fix those for you.
2: That's right. The man that got stabbed by Janet in the film role is Sheriff Gillis. Now, I like twist endings, and I like twist endings uh, as an adult when they're warranted, and when there are clues along the way that you can then pick up on on rewatches. The only thing that this twist really does for me now is raise the biggest question of all, why in the world would any of the stuff prior to this happen? If Gillis was himself a reanimated corpse? And there are so many other questions that this raises... When did Gillis get changed? Was it during the time of the movie? Or prior was to was it before that? or after he came to was town? Was he already married to Had Janet? I never noticed his hands cracking and bleeding like that How before? Is Dobbs, the mortician, and the Those are two separate jobs. Why did they kill the fisherman? Was, was he, he an outsider? Is anyone not a zombie? Why did not. they stage the murder? As accidents? As why does everyone, everyone throw everyone suspicion, suspicion on Janet? Janet? Who exactly is in when on it? Why does Ben get killed and changed? If he was always in on it, why does he tell Gillis about why Freddy? Why was Gillis suspicious about the if film? If the guy role? at the camera shop was in on it, why did he process the film? Why does Harry tell Gillis about the car? Why the does Dobbs ocean? report the hitchhiker's body did missing? the scalpless woman get on the hood of the car? Can she can fly? How do they know Doc is investigating the flesh from Gillis' journal Is, is the, the one who reanimates the Dobbs this? obviously fixed them up. But she seems to be the one that knows about what right? ever in fall apart? Who exact top exactly top? in this town is, is in on, on it? On and, it? In on and when it? do they change? And when were they killed? It? Now, I have my suspicions that this possibly came about from reshoots. The film roll footage is notably different in a couple of spots. When Gillis goes back to the coroners, the angles and uh, some of the character action in the film roll when Gillis sees himself in it is different than what we previously saw. And they could have just done that to obfuscate it earlier when he looked at it. But I kind of have an, a feeling that Gillis wasn't supposed to be one of the reanimated dead originally. And they threw that in for a nice shock twist ending. But it kind of makes the rest of the movie fall in on itself. The other part of the film role that's different, different excuse me, is the footage of the hitchhiker getting killed. When they show it in the movie, she is laying on the ground and gets smashed in the face with a rock. And in the film role, she's laying up against the cab of the truck that the fisherman was driving her in. So it could just be that they took different takes and inserted those things as film role. It could be, again, reshoots, and they just didn't bother um, with continuity too carefully. Again, I have no idea what the correct answer is. I'm just suspicious about um, Gillis being one of the Zombies, And now, really, they're not zombies. These are more... We've got the tie-in with voodoo here throughout. Dobbs explains that they basically only know what he tells them to know. And so they're kind of... They harken back more to zombies as they were presented in films from the 30s, 40s, and 50s as mindless slaves there to do his uh, you know somebody's bidding and for Gillis
0: that doesn't sound right
2: I mean Dobbs it's really just a way to show off his talent and then they just go about their normal lives and function doing their regular jobs but they really only know what he tells them to know so maybe that's the whole point maybe Gillis is a sheriff and he's performing that duty throughout the movie um, I guess that's one option for this. Otherwise, like I said, it just folds like a house of cards once we realize he is one of the dead. And regardless of any of that, I still love this movie. It is filled with plot holes, but it has an atmosphere and tone that I really love. The music is great, once again. that. Special effects are amazing. The acting's really good. It's a great cast, which I will get into finally here in a few minutes. You know, I think we used to give movies a little more leniency when it came to plot holes and stuff like that. With the advent of the internet and kind of always having to be right fighters, as my wife calls them. You know, a a plot hole here and there is fine. Sometimes... Movies get edited and they get cut down and stuff gets left out or stuff gets added without thought about previous actions. And we just seem to be so much more picky about it these days. Not to say that no one back then thought it was confusing because I have, of course, my trusty Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film. And I want to read the review for Dead and Buried. And I think I forgot to do that for Halloween 3 last time, darn it. And if I'm not mistaken, it's not a bad review um, of the movies that I've done so far. I think that Tourist Trap is really the only one that's gotten a negative. But this is uh, kind of points to some of those things that I've mentioned. So here's that. Dead and Buried, 1981, Avco Embassy. Producers, Robert Shussett and Robert Fentress. Director, Gary A. Sherman. Screenwriters, Robert... Robert Shussett and Dan O'Bannon, supposedly. A confusing, stupid, gory horror movie about reconstructed corpses living in a New England town. Everybody there seems to know what's going on except for Sheriff James Farentino. Jack Albertson, in his last role, plays an eccentric old mortician-slash-zombie master who at one point is seen operating on himself. With Melody Anderson, from Flash Gordon, Providing Beauty and Laughs, Michael Pataki and a Syringe Through an Eyeball, by the director of Raw Meat and the writers of Alien, rated R. Stupid and gory. That's, that about sums it up, I guess. And then I wanted to read another one. This is another book that I had back in the late 80s called The Phantom's Ultimate Video Guide. This was kind of torture for myself, reading through all these books, because most of these movies were not available in our local video stores. So I would find out about all these cool movies that I wanted to see and have no way of seeing them. And that's why I love streaming so much. And I may at one point do an episode about the little notepad that I kept for each one of these different books, or at least for Psychotronic and the massive encyclopedia of horror movies that I have, I kept a list of movies to try and track down. And for many years, I had absolutely no luck. And it wasn't until streaming that I've actually been able to see a good handful of them. And here is the Phantoms review. And it looks like we've got... He has a diamond rating system. And I think it's out of either four or five. And this only gets a two and a half. Dead and Buried, 1981. Dan, Darkstar O'Bannon's agreeably perverse script pits small-town sheriff Ferentino against local undertaker Albertson and a number of homicidal cadavers who refuse to stay dead in this uneven but generally entertaining sickie.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome
2: to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18+. Okay, finally on to the cast, which I have been promising throughout. And we don't have a very genre-heavy cast, but there are some notable faces in there, uh, mainly as background characters. Sheriff Dan Gillis is played by James Ferentino, and... I don't recall him being in any other horror movies. I may be wrong. He has a long, long, long list of credits. And then, like was mentioned in the Psychotronic blurb, Melody Anderson, who the previous year had been in Flash Gordon, is his wife, Janet. And Jack Albertson, who most people my age probably recognize from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He was Grandpa Joe. And then... We watched Chico and the Man when I was a kid, so I remember him from that as well. And then for the supporting cast, the future horror icon I mentioned at the beginning is a young, baby-faced Robert England. And he had done a number of, I think, TV and small movie roles prior to this, but this may very well have been his first horror movie. Um, If you know the answer to that, please let me know. I'm probably wrong. And Lisa Blount, she is the young lady from the beach and who played the nurse that kills poor George Lemoyne. She was in John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, and she was in Needful Things. And then Michael Pataki, who was mentioned also in the Psychotronic Blurb, He does have some horror creds. He was in The Baby, which is a crazy, crazy, crazy early 70s movie. Uh, Graduation Day, which is one of the numerous Friday the 13th ripoffs from the early 80s. Uh, Sweet 16 and Halloween 4. And then the two character actors I mentioned are Barry Corbin, who has been in just a gazillion things, probably most well-known for Northern Exposure. And I love him in No Country for Old Men. And then the other one is Glenn Morshauer. And he is the dude that plays the red-headed asshole in just about every cop or military show. He was in 24, he was in CSI, he's, I mean... If they need some guy to play a dick, they, they get this dude. And I guarantee you that about 90% of this cast has appeared on an episode of Murder, She Wrote. And that wraps up this episode of Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror, Season 1, Episode 4 on Gary Sherman's Dead and Buried. And I want to just take a moment to request that listeners please leave a rating and or a comment on iTunes or on Google Play. The podcast is now on Google...
0: That doesn't sound right.
2: Google Play, excuse me. I don't know why I hadn't uh, put it on there before. Ignoring all you Android folks was not my intention. The deal with ratings and... Comments really, really helps to get podcasts out there. And I know that I've mentioned it on a couple of the episodes, but I really would like to uh, ask earnestly for anyone who has listened, family and friends included, to please take a second and leave a rating. What happens is if you listen to or subscribe to other podcasts, then the algorithm kind of generates that information and helps this podcast pop up in searches or suggestions for people. So that's a great help. And I am not above bribery. I would like to offer stickers to anyone who leaves a comment. If you let me know that you've left a comment and send me your address through the blog, I will send you some stickers. And I may very well read your comment on the next episode. So hit that like button, subscribe, comment, share, all that good stuff. I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. This is Mark, and don't forget to wake up heavy.